We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the Serum Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management, archaeology, and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 179 for December 18th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about what a career in archaeology actually looks like. So get ready to take notes and send angry emails because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. All right, welcome to the show, everybody. Joining me today is Bill in California. Hello. And Stephen in snowy Calgary. Hi. We always say at the beginning of these shows that uh, we want people to write in and comment and, you know, share them out because the kind of the whole point of doing this podcast is to generate conversation and to get people to think about stuff, right? So uh, I'm going to read um, some comments we got from Twitter. I'm not going to mention who that came from because they were a private message to the Archaeology Podcast Network and the person didn't respond when I asked if I could, you know, put their name out there. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm just going to read this. And the person says here... Uh, and I don't know if it's a, a man or a woman. So if I say she or he, that's really just because I slipped up and said that. But I actually don't know who this person is from a gender standpoint or how they identify. So uh, it's purely inconsequential if I say something. Yeah, I'll go with they, but sometimes I screw up. <laughs> you know, sometimes my brain just inserts a, a word and I just, all right, whatever. All right. So what they said was... Part of the reason I love the Sierra Archaeology podcast is that most of your hosts, I would say all of our hosts, have spent time working as a field tech at one point in their careers. Uh, it greatly concerns me when I hear a project manager state that they can train a green tech to do archaeological monitoring. We need less of a warm body philosophy and better archaeological practice if we want a union. And I think we were mentioning that in the last show. I mean, sometimes warm bodies are needed, but that's more of in a, in a big field tech, you know, we're hiring 40 techs and they can kind of learn on the job sort of thing if they're new. But yeah, we mentioned that aspect about monitoring is that it, it needs to be somebody who's experienced because there's the only person out there. Anyway, continuing, this person says on another topic, while I was an undergrad student, I sought out internships in various settings and learned the CRM laws. It was critical for formulating career goals before graduate school, seek out advice from project managers about which universities to attend. In Southern California, CRM firms like a particular professor because of his research on the coast and his connections to the CRM industry. Thirdly, if the student is able, study at a different university than the undergraduate program. Uh, it's different. It's a bit more challenging, but the person will have more connections and less of a bias. So I think since we kind of talked about the warm body archaeological monitoring thing on the last episode where this came up, let's let's just bring up the second one. Part of what she says in there, guys, is is to go to a graduate program uh, separate from the school where you got your undergrad. And I think I've heard that throughout. I heard that before I went to grad school. Uh, I don't know if people are still saying that, but I think, I think personally it's a good idea because you gain a, a different perspective. So maybe something wise to do, this would be really difficult if you're in high school right now. Yeah, I, I, I 100% agree. I, I always yeah. recommend going to different schools and, and trying to get it as much different uh, experiences you can. And that carries forward. So when you're working, it, it goes into, uh, you know, work for a lot of different companies mm -hmm. and a lot of different places. And, you know, yeah. 
the broader experience, particularly at the entry level, uh, the better. Yeah, yeah. Well, that could be tricky, though, like I said, because if, if you're out of high school and you're thinking about where to go to college and you might think you want to, uh, you, you have to have a lot of foresight, really, if you want to go to into CRM as a career, which I don't know anybody who hasn't been to college yet that's thinking, man, I like to go into CRM as a career. Because the reason I'm saying this is I feel like your graduate program, if you're going to go to graduate school, it's going to be more formative on your thinking about the rest of your career than your undergraduate degree. You know, it, it's it's going to it's going to tighten up what you think uh, and how you think. So the graduate program that you intend is very important. So if you go to an undergrad program that has a great graduate program in archaeology or CRM archaeology, then you might want to stay there and violate that rule <laughs> just because it's got a great program that's aligned with your goals. But if you have the ability to think ahead and, and you, you have the time and effort to say, well, I really want to go to grad school here, so I'm not going to go to undergrad here. So I'm going to go over here to my undergrad and it's going to be pretty expensive. So maybe go to an in-state school for that and then go to where you want to go for your graduate degree. So I don't know, but that'd be really hard to, to manage. I mean, I had no idea I was even going to grad school until well after I got out of my undergrad. Yeah, and that's the one thing that I would like to say about this. Uh, really, it actually depends on the individual. In a perfect world, we would know what we're going to do and then we would just you know, set up all the blocks and knock them all down, but that's never really right. how it ends up happening. And then also yeah. with the grad school, sometimes you don't get in. And sometimes you don't get in even at your own university, right? Because you have no way of knowing who's going to apply that year, how much money they have yeah. for graduate students, who, what, which professors accept another student. I mean, that's a whole other thing. And then finally, you know, you, you're trying to choose a graduate program where there's folks that you can work with. So sometimes, you know, if, if the department doesn't do the thing that you're actually interested in, and there's no one there to help you finish your research or get out of college. I mean, that's not really the best fit for you, even if it's, you know, a prestigious place or you're getting a full ride. So there's a combination of things. So it depends on which direction you're going to go, right? So if you're an undergrad and you're planning on going on for your master's right out of undergrad, you're not going to be at a field tech. You're not mm -hmm. going to do anything. You're just going to go straight through. Then, you know, you really need to start looking at what kind of incentive you can get if you can get funding, if you can get tuition waived and, and, and other things. And, you know, you're going to get that at a, a terminal MA program where the MAs are the main course, I guess, of the whole program. And so every TA position is by someone who's going for their MA and, and uh, every, you know, research grant, travel grant is really for the MA folks. So if you're in that kind of situation and you end up going there, an undergrad and then you have a terminal MA thing and they actually like you and it's a good fit, then it's probably a good idea to just stick it out there. If they'll accept you and you can get, you know, tuition waiver or an MA or you can get a TA position. Mm -hmm. If you go, if you're going for a master's at a place that has a, a PhD, then you're in the same place as the other PhDs. And, you know, I, I watched it happen at Arizona. Essentially you end up being the one who's paying retail for your master's while the PhDs get tuition waivers and research stipends and they're available to apply for these grants because they're PhD students, but then the MA students have way fewer options. So in that case, you know, you're going for prestige, but you're also going to just get out fast. So the folks who are there, the professors that are there, people that you work with, folks that are going to help you out, you know, that plays a bigger role because, you know, you are trying to build those connections, but you're paying retail the whole time. So you might as well just get out as fast as you can and, and do the kind of research that you that you can get and further your career, because it's pretty clear that your university's department is aiming towards these PhDs. Uh, I don't recommend that anyone just mm -hmm. take their PA and try to go for a PhD. I don't think it's, you know, 
uh, that sound of a move. However, I have some people who are just complete geniuses that are going to get, you know, full ride. They're absolutely <laughs> intelligent, super motivated. All they just live and think and breathe graduate school. Those are the kind of people that are going to kill it no matter where they're at. And, you know, if you're, if you're a genius and you, know, you can get scholarships and have you come to your school and you're going to get a free ride at, you know, Harvard or UCLA or in your undergrad, just go ahead and do it. You can get research, you can get experience later. But right now is the time when everybody really wants you. And, you know, that's the kind of person that ends up running, you know, like the NSF or, you know, being a UNESCO, you know, those are, the, those are, the, they're just motivated all day and all night. They're in a different category. However, 99% of myself, I can speak to else on the show. Uh, <laughs> BA, I wasn't ready for PhD. I yeah. was not ready to go on for that. Uh, and after my MA, I was definitely yeah. ready for PhD. So you finish an MA, you've been doing CRM for a while. Yeah, you're ready for a PhD. All right. Well, I'd like to get uh, Heather's thoughts on this. She joined us after we started the recording, so I didn't get to introduce her. But Heather, uh, welcome to episode one seventy nine. And what what are your thoughts on on going into a uh, going into a, a graduate program, but you know maybe seeking out a different program from the one that you first got your uh, undergrad in? That's basically what we're talking about. Um, thank you. Sorry yeah. about the late entry. <laughs> <laughs> I think it depends on your path. And I think that uh, for the most part, I think it's a good idea to to have two separate experiences, mm-hmm. your undergrad and your graduate. You know, obviously, the where you go to undergraduate and if you're ready to just go straight into your MA from there, you know, there are going to be some incentives that are thrown at you from where you are at undergrad. Then again, there are some universities that uh, don't want that. In fact, they don't accept you, or it's a little harder to get in if you already had an undergrad. I, I can think of a few places right now that they actually prefer to have students that come in that are coming in from another program because they, they like to see you. You know, I, I think it just depends on the department. I do think that it is good to have two different perspectives, ideally, but Again, you have to see what works for you. When I was in graduate school, I was a single mom with two very small children, and I had to do what was practical for me. And I think, you know, this obviously is a um, is a subject that I think would be good for us to um, talk about. Um, it's something that's been talked about quite a bit on uh, certain uh, platforms, and that is, mm-hmm. you know, being a parent and being an archaeologist. And that's that is definitely a challenge. So I think you just have to look at your life. And look at what is going to work best for you. And um, also look at um, scholarships and what's going to be provided you. I actually finished, uh, it took, you know, it was was a solid three-year program. You could, it was difficult to get out and actually do a good uh, research project, you know, do a good, a, a, a solid thesis in anything under three years uh, in the program that I was in. And I actually went through and, and I don't have any called any any debt at all. Everything I did was on scholarship. So and that was in an, a, a terminal MA program. So it is possible. But in, you know, I looked at it when I was looking at call, uh, universities and whether I was going to do the MA or the PhD route. And I knew that when I was looking at PhD programs, there were quite a few that said that were going to accept me, but they said that they wanted that commitment of a full PhD. They were not interested in me doing an MA and then deciding from there. They wanted that commitment. In fact, they weren't even going to give the MA partway through. You had to commit to the whole PhD program. So for me, unfortunately, I had to look at the reality of of being able to be employable and I wanted to be able to have the flexibility of moving 
forward um, mm-hmm. right after MA if that's what I decided to do. And so I, I went ahead and decided to do the MA first and then decide whether or not I was going to carry on to a PhD. And so, again, you, you just have to look at your life and what works best for you. Yeah, uh, all good points, all good points. And I think, first off, something you mentioned right at the beginning of that was, you know, having a conversation about parents and being a parent in CRM. Go check for anybody listening to this, head on over to the arcpodnet.com page and you could do forward slash CRM arc podcast or just do it from the main search page. We have talked about being a parent and, and, and raising children while in archaeology. However, uh, it's always good to have that talk again, especially with different perspectives, because you could have, uh, I feel like 20 different people talking about raising a family uh, while being a serum archaeologist, and you'll get 20 different perspectives on it. <laughs> so, you know, it would be it would mm-hmm. be great to get your perspective. Sure. It would be great to get Bill's perspective again, because now he's a now he's a professor. You know, he's not in CRM anymore. How is that a challenge with raising his children? You know, what is that? Uh, how is that different? How is it better? How is it worse? You know, stuff like that. So uh, but then on top of all that, going back to the grad school thing, I think also when you're choosing a program, and I've said this a number of times, look at your long-term career goals. And you might not know what those are yet. And those are probably going to change, to be honest. But but look at your long-term right. career goals now and say, listen, do I just see myself working for, a, to be honest, it's it's probably not going to be a mom and pop in 30 years, but working for like a major CRM, you know, engineering firm in the CRM department and, and leading a group of people or working, uh, I don't know, as a PI or something like that at another firm. If that's the case, then what you do for your grad school program is probably not going to matter too much. So get out as cheap and quick as you can. (laughs) I say that time and time again, if you've got money to burn and you don't care about student loans and study something fun because you may not be able to do that ever again. However, if you're, if you, if you want to just spend the least amount of money and get out in the quickest way possible, then find a program that is amenable to that and know that, you know, maybe you're just looking for the check in the block. And I can't, I can't say that enough. I say it all the time. So one issue I have with that is the notion that, you know, people out of high school even or uh, undergrad know exactly what they want to do. And mm-hmm. even those people who think they know what they want to do, um, and until you've actually done it and you've done it for a number of years, th- does it really kind of solidify in? And, and right. I think that a lot of times you get people who kind of uh, i'm gonna call it the tech school route um that might be mm-hmm. a little bit of a misnomer but basically you know they're gonna do what you say where it's like they're an undergrad they've been to field tech for a couple of seasons you know short seasons um because they were going back to school and they they love it they, they want this is what they want to do and um you know so they go and quickly you know just knock out any old ma because that that'll get them their ticket to you know kind of advance up in, in the CRM industry. And then they go out and they do CRM for a few years. And and the problem is at that point, well, one, they're kind of trapped because it's like if, if they did the quick and dirty, you know, MA got me what I want, not all doctoral programs like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so like if they do want to mm-hmm. go back, they might be at a, a certain disadvantage. The other thing is by going and doing like, you know, like a larger MA sort of thing, they kind of have the opportunity to like be exposed to new ideas that they weren't exposed to as the undergrad. And maybe they're like, you know what, CRM's cool and I'm okay with it for right now. But long-term, I think that something else would more align with my research interests that I didn't even know was a thing until you started digging deeper in, at the MA level in, in grad school. I, I guess my overall idea is, is that 
you know, we don't necessarily know what you want because you haven't been exposed to it yet. And, yeah. and, and the, the more sure and more streamlined you try to make your process at, at the undergrad and, and even the MA level, the less like less likely you are to be exposed to other things that you might actually find more beneficial. The other thing I I remember about my grad school both times I went back for my masters at the University of Idaho and I went back for my PhD. Both times I pursued research that I found was interesting and things that I knew that I could actually keep working on for a long time even after I get completely sick of the entire thesis process. And after I finished those degrees, it was those research interests, those things that I'm really interested in that have kept me through CRM at times when I was doing projects that I thought were totally horrible. I mean, writing short blurbs for uh, newsletters and writing blog posts and other things on stuff that I found interesting. I mean, that really kept me going when I was sitting in hotel rooms and doing projects that I found completely undesirable and uh, not very interesting and I actually didn't want to be there. So there is mm -hmm. something, I agree with Stephen, something to be said about choosing a place where you can do the kind of research that you've always wanted to do, because especially in CRM, you don't always get the chance to do the research that you find interesting. Okay. Well, on that note, that uh, somewhat sad note. It's not a <laughs> sad take note. Our first it's just break. a legit note. <laughs> <laughs> It's a reality check. <laughs> All right. Well, then uh, on that reality, reality check, then we mm -hmm. are going to take our first break and come back on the other side and uh, continue our discussion that we had last time regarding a long email that uh, Doug got. So we'll do that on the other side. Back in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months, or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code CRMARC. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, we are back on the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 179. And as I mentioned before the break, we are going to talk about a couple extra questions that we had from the email that Doug mentioned on the last episode, uh, the Sierra Mark podcast episode 178. So if you want to listen to that, go ahead. Uh, but these are basically standalone episodes because this person that emailed Doug had a lot of questions and they're, uh, some of them work together and some of them do not. But I'm going to bring up two questions and I'm not going to read the whole thing because they really, they really go into some detail and Doug's already responded to him on that. But they kind of 
work together as well. And so I'll, I'll mention the first one here and just the first part of it. And he says, at the moment, I'm just pulling together pieces of the puzzle. I'm not completely certain about my career goals. And that is partly because I don't have a clear idea of what a job in archaeology might look like. And the second part of this question, which I'll mention again later on, but because I think these kind of go hand in hand, he says, when I mentioned hands-on fieldwork, I'm referring to the work that would allow me to be physically engaged with artifacts, remains, dig sites as much as possible. He says, there are a few work scenarios that I would consider perfect, putting realism aside for the moment. Uh, one or two of them would be working primarily outdoors on a project that I've invested my time into, like long-term projects. So anyway, he goes on to say a bunch of things, but... I think what Stephen and I were talking before uh, Heather and Bill got on, but we were talking about what that even means. And, and I think taking off on this first part, I don't have a clear idea of what a job in archaeology might look like. I'm not sure any of us have a clear idea of what a job in archaeology might look like <laughs> because it's constantly changing. And uh, I'll kick this discussion off. <laughs> I'll kick this discussion off by saying, you know, it, it really talking about the second part of his question, saying which everybody who is not an archaeologist, it's almost universal that they say, oh, I want to be outside and I want to work with my hands and I want to be on a dig site for basically the rest of my life. Not really realizing the a physical implications of that on your body, but b the actual reality of that. If you're going to be a college professor, you're probably only going to be on a field site for six weeks out of the year, uh, maybe longer if you're running a couple field schools, but very short period of time when looked at in the context of the entire year. And Bill can chime in on that in a minute here. But yeah, tra yeah. tragic, but true. <laughs> right, <Very tragic>. right. <laughs> I even actually don't get to spend enough time doing lab work anymore. I kind of want to wash artifacts, yeah. but I don't even get to do that. No, no. And, and then there's multiple facets of CRM archaeology because we all know at least a few people that have been uh, career field techs, maybe crew chiefs, but either way, career field people, right? They're always in the field. They're, they're traveling from job to job, basically career shovel bumps, uh, because I wouldn't consider... Uh, salaried project managers, PIs, things like that, shovel bums anymore. And I don't think anybody would, but the people who are actually traveling around consistently, uh, and I know of at least a few people that I still follow on, on the social media sites that they're really just, they're moving around. It's what they enjoy. It's what they love. And, and if they can do it physically and financially and, and keep that lifestyle going, then more power to them. But a lot of people just naturally sort of want to, I, I don't know, settle down. It's in our human nature to, to want to settle into a location and have some security. We always hear those words security and they want to, I guess, I guess tie themselves down to a location and a, and a job, but nothing is secure in this field. I mean, absolutely nothing. And I'll, I'll bring this up one more time and then I'll let the others uh, chime in. But there was a company here in Reno that right about now, actually, I think it was three or four years ago, uh, maybe less, but they, it was at least two years ago. They're a pretty stable company, I would say. They had some people there that have been working there since they got out of college and, uh, you know, been there for 10 years plus. And all of a sudden, they they laid off almost their entire field staff, including people that had been there for a really long time and thought they would be there for another 10 years. It's because of the market. They had no work. They simply couldn't afford to pay anyone anymore. And they laid everybody off two weeks before Christmas, which mm -hmm. from a financial standpoint is not uncommon in this field to be in Nevada, to be out of work by mid-December. <laughs> if you haven't planned to, to have any lab work or report writing or anything like that. I mean, it's just you just can't do field work in this state in general, starting at about maybe December. There are some areas that are lower in the valleys where you can do some field work because there's no snow on the ground. But in a lot of places, it's just too high of altitude and there's snow covering the ground and you just can't do field work. So, you know, I can't really fault the company for doing that. If they didn't have the money, they didn't have the money, but maybe they should have thought about that and found other things where, I don't know, the business could, could be profitable. But 
Most companies don't do that. That's kind of a pie in the sky sort of dream. And and they're a pure CRM firm, so they couldn't take their people and move them over into other departments for a little while that were able to work. You know, like major engineering firms, they're going to have that ability mm-hmm. in some cases to shift people around and to shift finances around and not lose the people and the training and time they've invested in them. Whereas mom and pop CRM firms, my own included, simply couldn't afford to hire people without work and to keep them staffed without work. So... That's my soapbox on this. Um, what do you, what do you, what do you guys think? Yeah, I, I agree. Almost all the times I got laid off were either before Christmas or right after Christmas. So, you know, by the winter yeah, time, it's the, the hazard of the job start drying up, and it's going to be months before more construction really begins. So, and, and like you, I mean, we all, and I, I remember actually when I knew I was going to lose my job, but after it happened a few times, you can kind of sense what's about to come down the line. Uh, I remember thinking, well, why don't they diversify? It's not as easy. I mean, it's not easy to come in with millions of dollars in some other line of your business while still maintaining the thing that actually puts food on the table. So, you know, I go back and forth on it because I always feel like, you know, historic preservation and landscape architecture and just basically architecture in general and environmental engineering is where you can make boatloads because, you know, one architect can feed like three archaeologists just on the overhead of that one architect's, uh, you know, uh, abilities or whatever. And all the companies where we where we did have more stability, there were a lot of architects and landscape architects and stuff and people who could do the designing mm-hmm. work for these construction uh, projects and the archaeologists were there too. So you're right if you have those two things. But you know, I don't know what comes first, right? Does the design work come first, then the archaeology? Or do the archaeologists realize, hey, we really need some architects on here to start getting this design work. And then it ain't easy to build that your right. clientele for that other design work if you're known for archaeology. It's like, well, why would I go with you? You aren't even architects. Why would I go with you? Mm-hmm. But long story short, that is tragic. And it happens every single year. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, as the we've talked about many times, uh, and, you, you know, you wrote a whole book on it, how to survive and how to get unemployment, how to right. save for the winter and how we know so many other people who do other, you know, holiday jobs. They just stop being field techs and they just you know, uh, teach snowboarding or work at Starbucks or something else until this the snow, you know, goes away. Yeah. You, I mean, you're at the mercy of your employer, really, if you only have one stream of income right. and no other uh, skill you can get a winter job. And, and two two ideas really coming off of that. One I forgot to mention, and the other one I'll I'll talk about what you're just saying there. It, it's it's always important for people who want to maintain a field lifestyle to to really come up with a solid quality side hustle that they enjoy, not something that they have to do over the winter, like work at Starbucks. Unless you really enjoy coffee and working at Starbucks, then fantastic, go ahead. But if if you want to. I feel like this career gives us a unique opportunity to explore those other things that maybe were passions in our life and and see if we can monetize that, if we can save enough money to really pay most of the bills, if not all the bills for three or four months during the winter, and then have that ability to pursue those other passions, whether they're monetizable or not. And then, you know, maybe that can work into something. So that's a that's something that is unique to our career, I think, and, and very few other careers, because then you can just pick the field work back up in the back up in the spring. But then one other thing I got to mention, because because a lot of people think when, when they're coming up to their first winter time and their first layoff is a I need to do something else to make money. And B, man, if I just had my own company, I could write my own ticket. My God, how many times have I heard <laughs> that? And let me tell you. let me tell you it's nerve-wracking i haven't had an employee for a few years now right i've done 1099 contracts and things like that but five years ago i was on a navfac navfac southwest 
contract with another company and my company dig tech got uh and and listeners longtime listeners of the show know they've heard me rant about this before but they got uh in fact i started the archaeology podcast network while i was on one of those projects which was totally insane but i got two big projects that i'd never done even as a even as as an employee for other countries companies i'd never had projects this big before but i had a fifteen thousand acre project and a thirty thousand acre project back to back and I was basically gone wow. 10 on four off from Reno. Uh, one was in Southern California. The other was in Central California. And I was gone for about nine months uh, working on these projects, you know, with, with brief trips back to home and my wife coming down to visit me. And, and they, weren't, they weren't crazy profitable either because margins are tight <laughs> because of the way these things are bid. And now that same company, that five-year contract is over and they bid it again. And I literally got an email yesterday as we're talking saying that they won that contract again. And I almost didn't sleep last night because the anxiety of possibly getting, because these five-year NAFAC contracts, they like to do the big survey work right at the beginning of the contract. And then it's a bunch of piddly stuff because I didn't have anything from these guys for the last like three or four years. They just handled it, right? But my company did the field work for those big projects and they wrote the report and handled the mapping and all that stuff. And we did the site records and the field work. And I'm expecting that to kind of come down again here within the next few weeks, maybe in the next couple of months. And I'll tell you what, the anxiety of handling $20,000 every two weeks in payroll and being able to fund that and getting the loans to be able to do that because I don't have that kind of money sitting in the bank and then invoicing the company every few weeks for, you know, for their share and just the the thought of doing another project. Now, that being said, I know I would be able to do it uh, even more efficiently than we did last time because we were pretty efficient last time, but I learned a lot of stuff doing those two projects. And my, my whole point with this is starting your own company is not necessarily the answer to all of your problems because it brings with it a whole new suite of problems, <laughs> a whole new suite <laughs> of problems. And if you're up to the challenge, if you're up to the challenge, go for it. But just know that it is going to be a challenge in a very different sort of way and, and sometimes not a good way right off the bat. As far as the, the question of uh, being able to make it through that time, you know, the, the winters and everything, I'm, I'm lucky I live in Southern California, but it still does wane. <laughs> You know, even though we, you know, it, I'm from Chicago and it oh, boggles yeah. my mind that, that, uh, what do you call it? A drive through or drive in theaters closed down for the winter. I'm like, <laughs> that's just the, the strangest concept. They closed down for the winter in California. Um, right. there is no winter here, but, um, <laughs> you know, I think that, I, you know, archaeology, especially as we call field bumming and, and for those that maybe are listening to the podcast and, aren't familiar with that term that is said in the most kind and respectful way. It, it's a, it's a coin term that is, that is a positive term. So um, it's, it's not a derogatory term, but being a shovel bum definitely attracts a certain kind of person, uh, uh, maybe somebody with a little bit of wanderlust or somebody who doesn't really like to be settled down, so to speak. And um, for those, like you said, that, that are doing it for the interim to get that experience and then want to settle down, that's great. For those that, that don't and really do enjoy that travel and, and the, a, bit, a bit of uncertainty, but you still need to make money. I think one thing, if you want to stay in the CRM, is that you, you really have to get out of the mindset of, I only do field work. Because, you know, when I talk to my kids, you know, life is about, I, and they always roll their eyes. So I'm sure others that are listening to this will be rolling their eyes. But life is about 
in my approximation, doing about 70%, and this is reality, 70% of what you don't want to do so you can do 30% of what you do want to do. Life's about doing things you don't want to do. And so that, you know, does carry over to the professional realm as well. And so, you know, some things for somebody that, you know, we we even have some people that work in, in our company and thankfully we have consistent work that we can keep people like that busy, but we have some that absolutely, they, they will go crazy if they have to be in the, in the office more than, you know, 12 hours or 20 hours in a week. They just, they just don't like it at all, but you have to be willing to work on, on certain skill sets that are going to let you survive when you can't be in the field. And I think, you know, a few of those is, it's the simple, you know, DPR, uh, being able to fill out forms correctly, um, having some technical writing abilities, just being able to, you know, just kind of putting down the record search results section. That is an an art in and of itself. But it's, if you get good at that, you know, make you very very valuable. Um, mm-hmm. Doing some, you know, lab analysis. But you know, sometimes labs not always available, but writing always is. And being that jack of all trades, the person that is willing to do anything, even if you don't know, you know, but the person says, hey, can you do this? You know what? I don't, but I'm a quick study and I'll, and I'll, I'll learn how to do it. So you have to, you know, I hear a lot of people in the field that, you know, the, all they want to do is be in the field. But unfortunately, that's not reality if you want to continue to pay the bills. So yeah. that would be my advice. Yeah, along those lines, I, I, I find myself saying a lot lately uh, is, is that, you know, th- this is work and, 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 and it's called work for a reason. And, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and you have that notion. It's like you look around at other people who are doing jobs. You know, somebody comes in and, you know, is taking care of like making sure your Internet's running or, you know, like, you know, they come and repair your furnace. And it's like, are these <laughs> is is this these people's dream job? You know, like, did, are they sitting around? It's like, oh, man, I always wanted to repair furnaces for a living. It's like, mm-hmm. You know, probably not, but it's probably something that they don't mind doing. You know, they, they can stomach doing and that pays the bills. Right. Like yeah. that, that's what work is. Work is what you do to pay the bills. And, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, like the, you know, do what you love and you uh never have to work a day in your life. It, no, it, it, it doesn't work like that way. Mm-mm. Like you're, you're going you're gonna to be out there and you're going to be doing a whole bunch of surveys and you're not going to find crap and you're going to be standing in the rain and it's going to start to snow and you're going to be miserable and cold and, and tired. And you've been away from home for 20 days and you know, whatever. And sometimes that's the job. Preferably, you're not miserable the entire time, or you know that might be a signal that you need to get out. Mm-hmm. But understanding that, you know, the job's the job, and you're doing it because a you don't mind doing it, you don't mind the lifestyle, which whichever lifestyle your particular position has has you in. You're in the field a lot, you're in the lab a lot, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, and 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 then you just roll with whatever comes down the you know task list to you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I think we're going to take it to break here in a second. We're going to continue this discussion on the other side. However, uh, I will say, and maybe we can talk about this, but I think 
I just heard this in a movie of all places. I can't remember what movie it was, but it was a movie my wife and I were watching recently. But somebody said, you know, this person was a cashier. I wouldn't call that a career. I call that a job, you know, and it made me think, actually, that there really is a difference between a career and a job. And I feel like a career is more of a mindset. A career is more of a, you know, I'm going to do something within this field probably for the rest of my life. I mean, things change, but I'm probably going to be doing something like, you know, I'm doing way less field archaeology than I was five years ago, but I still am an archaeologist in in that I'm staying in this field in other ways, right? Uh, via this podcast, via Wild Note, via doing other things, I'm still staying in this field. And that, I think, is a career. I think my career as an archaeologist will always be there. But my, you know, if you have a job, that's the kind of thing that I don't know if that really is a career. And, and I think that sometimes a career can be a job. And there are aspects of your career that are job-like. But I don't know. It's just an interesting thing to talk about. So, uh, Stephen, let's take a let's take a break real quick here. I see your hand up, and we will come back and finish this discussion on the other side. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Sierra Mark Podcast, episode 179. And we are continuing this discussion about the emails that we've received. So, Stephen, you have a, an interesting perspective on jobs versus careers. Or so you think. Uh I didn't, say, I didn't say it was interesting. I just said I had I had some a comment. Um, okay. Now I think of something good. Um, I, I've said it before on the show. I, I don't really think in terms of jobs. I think in terms of projects, and and that's kind mm. of a reflection of kind of the whole gig economy sort of thing, right? Like when right. when you sign on to a company, you, you know you, you're given a project. And then, you know, you work on that project. And if you were only hired for that one particular project, that's all you get. But sometimes you kept on, they hand you to another project and they, you know, hand another project to you and so on and so forth. And, it, and it, you know, it's, that's the job, right? Mm-hmm. That, that you're working on all these projects. But then, like you were saying with your example of where everybody got laid off two weeks before Christmas, it's like sometimes there are no more projects. And and, and that's it. You know, that, that yeah. there, there goes the employment. Your employment is... Is, is basically a series of projects and you go from one project to the next. Right. Ideally, you know, for on a comfort level, all those projects are, you know, with one company, but you know, there are plenty of archeologists who, you know, work for one company for, you know, a project and then jump to another company for a project and, and, or they work for one company for a series of projects and then move to a different one and then move back. And then, um, you know, there's a little bit of flexibility in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so in in my mind, to to respond to your notion of like, you know, a career and, and is that the career is the long term set of projects that you've worked on, 
whereas your job is a smaller set of uh, projects or, or, you know, singular even. So, you know, if, if you want this to be your career, that's kind of a different thing that, mm-hmm. you know, you can have a career in archaeology that is a multiple, you know, that could be very different from beginning to end um, yeah. because you're going to be jumping from project to project to project. But in the immediacy, you have to deal with whatever this, whatever the project is on your desk, because it's the one mm-hmm. that's sitting on your desk. I think that's an excellent point that that you make as far as the differentiating the difference between, you know, a job and a career. And, you know, along the lines of that, the, the career is definitely something that you need to sit and you are actually massaging and working on yourself. And you have to think outside the box and and think about how do you want to progress in that career where the job is, like you said, a, a set of tasks put in front of you and you need, you know, you kind of, you need to follow those, those tasks. And, but the career is definitely something that you can't sit back. If this is something you want to be a career for you, uh, archaeology, you need to take an active role in, in creating your professional persona and your professional skill set. That's not something, a career is not something that just comes to you generally. Sometimes that happens, but for the most part, it's something that you have to work really hard at developing. And so along those lines, what we've mentioned before in this podcast and others, is that you really have to take an active role in developing yourself as a professional so that you can survive in this as a career. And it can become very uh, frustrating. You know, I've seen people get very frustrated because they feel like they're stuck. I see people that end up, they're monitoring all the time. And it's something that's, you know, listen, I think this isn't, this isn't what I signed up for. I didn't, I, I wasn't excited to, uh, in, in college and uh, university to, to go and monitor. This is not what I had envisioned myself doing as an archaeologist. And so, mm-hmm. and, but there's, I mean, it's obviously a very valuable um, task, a very valuable, valuable um, aspect of archaeology. But if that is something that you feel that you are stuck, it's on you to start developing yourself in a way. Reach out to your to your employer and and let them know that, you know, you would you're very thankful for the for the work, but you'd like to start pursuing other other avenues if they have them, other opportunities. And I'll say one more thing as far as developing and or making sure that you have a career uh, mindset is, you know, I'm finding that a lot of people that are, are applying to our company um, have this concept that they're going to be working straight through with one company. And that's, you know, that's kind of a new concept for me. When I started, you know, I've been lucky that I've been able to work for just a few companies, but for the most part, as a shovel bum or as a technician, you really do have to go out and be working for several different companies if you want to keep yourself active and, and moving. Um, it is a, a juggle game and, and you know you have to come in with that reality and realizing you can't just count on one company is going to keep you afloat for the entire season and generally does not work that way. The other piece I'd like to add, because these are all really good, this is all good information coming from folks who are living it you know, in real time. So it's not just Mm -hmm. made up. It's people who are living this life. But my career really changed when I started to visualize where I actually wanted to be. And I was working project to project and I was, uh, you know, trying to move up and uh, in the companies where I was at. But, you know, as long as we just focus purely on the job and trying to make money and all that kind of stuff, 
uh, we will lose sight of that we have a much larger life. And I think that's probably where the tragedy comes in when folks start and then they get laid off and they're kind of like, well, this is who I am. I don't really know anything else but this. And I'm just, I'm, you know, I used to be like that as well and tr- scrambling to get another job. But it wasn't until I started to think about, you know, the bigger picture of what kind of stuff do I want to have? You know, what, how do I want my kids to, do I want to take vacations with my kids? Do I want to provide certain things for my family? Um, do I want to do certain things? And then other things that I hate, what do I not want to do anymore? What do I want my life to look like? Those were all things that were beyond the, they weren't, they couldn't necessarily be influenced by my job because they were just kind of personal goals of becoming a better individual, you know, and, and working on things that I found interesting that don't have anything to do with, with archaeology because, when I was in it and I was trying my hardest to become an archaeologist and, and keep a job in archaeology, then that, it was like everything. If I went on a project that was really crummy and we didn't find anything, I was sad about the fact that we didn't find anything. <laughs> uh, when when we were, my hours were <laughs> cut back and I'm furloughed or, you know, things don't go the right way, I'm, I'm really sad about the way that, you know, I don't have this and I don't have that. Well, it wasn't until I started thinking about the stuff that I control about my thoughts and about the way I act and, you know, little things, the clothes that I have, how much time I, what do I do when my kid asks me for something? I mean, those were all things that I could control in the moment that didn't have anything to do with someone else hiring me. And, you know, that was what kind of person do I want to be? You know, how similar to my parents or not similar do I want to be? Is, is there someone that I really want to be like and start doing the kind of things that they did in their life? Are there places I want to go? Cause that was those dreams and imagination of, you know, things that are far in the future, you don't know how you're going to get them or what it'll actually look like when you get there. That aspiring towards those goals are what keep me from just only being an archaeologist and help me be a human being. Yeah, it's something you said, Bill, really made me think uh, back to, oh God, probably seven, eight, nine years ago. And when I think about the primary really aspect of this question that our emailer has asked is what does a job in archaeology look like is... I think it's, I think it's whatever you want it to look like, you know, because when you're saying like you, you get back from a day of survey and you didn't find anything, you know, you're sad about that. And and I used to be the same way too. And, but then at some point I, you know, I started looking back on the things that I had done and, and I never had kids in archaeology, uh, so I don't have that to, to worry about. And I think that's a very different thing that you have to think about when you're thinking about your career and what you're going to do, because with your time off, you're going to go back and visit your family or you have a family to support and you've got to constantly be thinking about that. So that's a different thing. But when my wife and I were traveling around shovel bumming, basically, uh, and doing archaeology, we we're trying to work our way west. A project I always think about is New Mexico. I don't remember that company very fondly. They were uh, very difficult to work for from a leadership and management standpoint. However, what I do remember, it was, first off, it's the only company I've ever worked for where the project schedule was nine days on, five days off. It's usually 10 and four, eight and six or something like that. But this was nine and five. So I think we worked four 10 hour days and, and eight five, eight hour days or some weird thing. I don't know why they did that. But anyway, on our five days off, I mean, we were staying in a place out near Chaco Canyon and on Mm. our five days off, I mean, you're surrounded by national parks, (laughs) like fantastic national parks, not to mention just Chaco Canyon, but El Moro. And we went over to the Grand Canyon, the Painted Desert, uh, a bunch of different parks. And we would camp and, and just stay and do stuff for those five days off. And when people with quote, normal jobs or even normal careers, think back to, let's say, what do you, what do you think about 2014? And they might say, well, I closed this deal or I did this thing from a job standpoint and say, okay, outside of your job, what do you think? Okay. Well, we took this one two week family vacation during my two weeks vacation. 
vacation. And part of it was to spend Christmas with Christmas with 45 of my family members. And I don't remember that being too fun or something like that. I'm not saying it's always that way, but when I think back to that year, I, I think of all the fantastic things we got to see and do. And that was part of the job. You know, that was like, I consider that part of the job. Part of the perks of the job is to be able to go and do and see whatever you want to do. And you can sit at home and watch TV if you want to, if that's your thing, but we're going different places. We're doing different things. And to me, that's what a career or a job in archaeology looks like is being able to craft that lifestyle in a way that, you know, you see fit. So I, I don't know. That, that is a, it's such a great idea and a, a good, really good reminder because no matter what, whether you're, you know, field tech or in the office or you know, it's sometimes you lose sight of what you really loved about archaeology or what you love about archaeology because it ends up becoming work and you attach that concept of work to your passion. And sometimes that can be very challenging. And so, you know, for me, I think one one thing is just allowing yourself to enjoy reading archaeology on a almost a superficial level, um, not necessarily having to study it if you don't want to read, you know, make sure that you're, you know, part of blog, blog or podcasts or blog posts or, and re- doing it for the fun of it also. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's something that we lose because we end up, you know, I've, I've joked about how, you know, I, I used to love to read, but I read so much for work that I don't read for enjoyment anymore. And mm-hmm. so, you know, trying to focus on those things that we really love to do and what really gave us that passion for archaeology to begin with, I think will keep you keep you going in the long run. There's also the opposite too. For example, probably the most influential job I ever had towards becoming an archaeologist was when I was a janitor. <laughs> and I hated that job. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, and I knew that if I was going to do anything, I, I, well, first of all, I knew that I could find a union job with benefits and retirement and savings and all that stuff, you know, anywhere. But it could also be something like, you know, being a janitor, right? Well, there's not really a lot of motivation or, I mean, movement in that because I wasn't really into it. And I couldn't find anything interesting about cleaning up a place that was getting dirtied every single day within seconds of me spending hours (laughs) cleaning it by people who didn't even care and looked down on me for who I was, right? So, you know, that right there was motivation that every single day after cleaning my whole thing and getting my stuff together, I spent, you know, all of the rest of my shift, all of my breaks, every single thing learning how to get a job so that I could get uh, a job in archaeology. And it took months. And I already had a master's degree too. So it was like, I got a master's degree and I'm a janitor here. Mm -hmm. And yeah, sure, I can feed myself and have a 401k and even a pension in this position. And, you know, go off into the sunset uh, 40 years from now after cleaning the same buildings many, many times, or I can bust my ass and never do this ever again while still having respect for the folks who do that and go after my dream of being an archaeologist. Yeah, indeed. And I think that's the point. You know, go after your dreams and do what you want to do. And Stephen said at the beginning of this uh, discussion that, you know, sometimes you, you always hear, Hey, go after your passions and the money will come and things like that. You know, we always hear that, but I think this is one of those careers where if you do it right, then you, you really can, you really can do that. But as Stephen also mentioned, uh, there is real work involved. I mean, this is a job, this is work and it's not going to be all, uh, you know, running through the running through the jungle uh, off to your plane, being chased by natives. Because <laughs> Indiana Jones is our best example of this job, right? Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, 
When it comes to green papers, I know why the guy was behind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It didn't have anything to do with adventure. <laughs> right, right. Well, I will say uh, to to finish out this guy's uh, this guy's questions on this email, he did say, um, uh, I think that. Let's see. What does he say at the end here? He said, I'm guessing CRM rather than academia as far as uh, allowing him to spend as much possible time, as much time possible doing hands-on field work. And uh, I guess I would have to agree with that. And and one, one final comment on that is the type of hands-on field work you're going to do really needs to be taken into consideration. Because if you think hands-on field work is doing excavations next to a highway or uh, 10 by 10 block excavations and then being shut down because you guys ran out of money uh, or the client did or something like that. That's one type of field work that we do in CRM. And then I think academic field work while shorter time periods, if you get to the point where you can craft that field work on your own because of your own research interests and say, listen, I want to work in XYZ place, just name the place. Uh, you have to find the school that will give you the education and allows you to do that and then go to another place and get to the point where you can say, listen, I want to start a field school here. It's going to be real work getting that funding, getting that lined up, getting the students for it and then going out there. But while, well, the point of this is, well, you might do less field work uh, and, and less hands-on work in academia, you might to have you might get to have greater influence over what you do get to do versus in CRM where you're, you're really going where the money is, to be honest. You're going where the contracts are. And until you get to write those contracts, then you're still going to be limited. And even if you are writing those contracts and, and bidding those contracts, you're still limited on where you can go and what you can do and, and what's out there and what's available. Nobody's going to give you the funding to just go do what you want to do in CRM. So... Yeah, I, I don't know where we ended well, up on this. Uh, other, yeah, go ahead. The other unstated part, though, of that comment that we don't talk about is that the person is artistic and has an art history degree and is interested in 3D modeling. And I was just like, yeah, yeah that's that's the ticket right there, my friend, because your phone or any digital SLR, I mean, you can get a, a quality camera and you can be creating, you know, 3D models of landscapes, uh, Adobe Pueblo sites, excavation units, and doing all kinds of stuff like that. And back at your hotel room with only a few dollars of software, be creating these 3D models that look totally awesome that you can put in the PDF of your company's report. I mean, you can be with, with the right targets and everything. You could be the person who's the photogrammetry expert of your company and still get a chance. I mean, yes, you'd be taking pictures of excavation units and, and other profiles and stuff or using, um, InDesign or Photoshop to digitize photos and create those profiles and stuff like that. But, you know, that mm -hmm. graphic arts aspect is a very real thing that was absolutely valuable that if that if you're into that and you're really good at that, I mean, that could be the difference that keeps you going during times when you're doing projects that you don't want. So that's the other thing that this interest, it seemed like, you know, well, I want to be an archaeologist. Yeah, but you're also a 3D modeler. And you know, this goes even beyond that. If you can figure out how to create those for your company's website using Unity and other immersive platforms, I mean, you could be the person who's creating uh, uh, activated books for kids. You could be the person who's making museum models for uh, museums and stuff like that. And so it doesn't have to just be uh, digging by the highway. This person yeah. has an aptitude and an interest in something that's invaluable and very interesting, too. I have a quick uh, just follow on just to cap what Bill was saying is that something really strong to consider, and, and this is especially true in, in the academy, um, let alone CRM, is that method specialization is what's transferable. 
And and that's what you want to aim for. So build that skill set that you can apply wherever you happen to end up, whatever project you have to happen to end up. That it's like, well, I'm not actually from Alberta, but I I have all these skills that I can apply to working in Alberta, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I would say another really good skill to have is GIS. That's transferable, not just yeah. to you know archaeology, but but uh, to anything, and and that is to many of the environmental disciplines, and it is so valuable. And if you have that, and you don't have to have it at a really, you know, you don't have to have a master's level. You don't even have to have a bachelor's level. You can have a certificate or just teach yourself. Being able to do that is something that, especially for uh, company owners, maybe the mom and pops, and I've been doing it for a long time and GIS wasn't there in the beginning and they don't have that skill set. It's just, it's invaluable. Yeah. And we talk about GIS a lot on this podcast. So that's definitely something that would help you in your career. So, all right, well, we are going to end this discussion right here. Please send in your questions or comments or thoughts about any things we've talked about. Uh, you can send it to Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or find our Twitter handles and some other contact info at arcpodnet.com forward slash CRM arc podcast. Okay. So uh, that's it. Thanks everybody. And we will see you next time. We're recording next time, two days before Christmas for people that saw celebrate Christmas. Um, So I have no idea what we're going to talk about, but it's going to be entertaining. All right. We'll see you guys next time. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at archpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in. We'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Bye. Wow, simultaneously. So you're oh, good. Yeah. Well, we're, good. We're, we're ruining it right now <laughs> for him in his honor. That's right. That's right. And Heather dropped right off. So no Heather either. So Heather says goodbye, though. All right. Okay. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.